thank you, worship team, for just giving us an opportunity to experience. Yeah. Um, you know, we're seeing words, and, and this is a series on worship, so we do want to invigorate that setting that we call worship in our church service, but there's other dimensions to worship that we're really talking about. But did you ponder? These words are designed in songs to meditate on. So you have this moment in the song that we just sang. I think it's the last song we did. Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scrolls? Do you know what that means? It's as though the God of the universe stared at the brokenness of our lives. And he wrote down chapters of redemption. And he sealed them up. What would exist for an eternity of restoration and freedom and deliverance from sin and all that God intends for us through all eternity. And he sealed it up. And he sets it down. And then we stare at that and we go, is anyone able to open that? Now, you recognize no one is. You understand those plans would have sat on that table forever and never become real to us if the Son of God had not come, did what he did, and opened those scrolls. And you and I just sang about that. Now, my interest in this series is how does that affect you? Because worship is very much an affection. Very much an affection. It is something affecting us. All right, so that's where I want to go today. But let me start us in Matthew chapter 4. In verse 8. The title of today's message is Worship is Ultimate. I know Pastor Peter mentioned last week that, <laughs> kind of laughed when he said this, but it's so, it is so true. Every time we stand in the pulpit, we think this is the most important message ever. Uh, I don't know if I've ever, ever preached that I didn't feel that way about whatever it is we're talking about. This is the most important thing you're ever going to hear. But when you title something ultimate, it does have some unique territory, right? So worship is ultimate. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Something very interesting in this exchange between Jesus and the devil learned about the way the devil operates, what's ultimate, and what does this mean for us? So here's this moment where the devil shows up with a discussion and a presentation of kingdoms, plural. I'm not sure all, what all that meant for Jesus. I'm pretty sure the temptations that come to me aren't the same kingdoms. <laughs> but he gets a presentation of kingdoms and their glory. So there's, there's good in this. There's virtuous quality content in this getting presented by the devil so there's all this stuff, and then there's this one thing, worship. I give you all this, Satan says. I just want one thing from you. I just want that thing in you called worship. And I'll give you all this stuff. D.A. Carson edited a book called Worship, Adoration, and Action. He says, this was not an invitation to change styles of worship, to move, say, from pipe organ to guitars. And I know some of y'all are waiting for this to go there, aren't you? 
This is a series on worship. Aren't we going there at some point? We'll go there a little bit, but that's not my main issue. In fact, it was not properly an ecclesiastical or corporate matter at all. It was private and personal. More importantly, it dealt with the fundamental question, the question of ultimate allegiance. Whom do you serve? At some point, our lives have little kingdoms in them. We have little realms of our life that also have some glory in them. There's something of quality. There's something of goodness. There's something of appeal. There's something of the character of these things in our lives. And we interact with them. They're a matters of importance. And, and your little set of kingdoms might be different than somebody else's. Right? If, if you're a, a, a young man living in the suburbs and you're seeking to do life, you know, you've got little kingdom elements that are in your life. Right? You, you, you want to find a wife or maybe you are married. You, you've got something for your kids and your family that you, you want, that little domain of your life. And then there's a career over here and there's something about that that's got a realm of kingdom-like activity. And there's, there's possessions, there's people there's social engagements in your life. There's a desire to be something and do something important. All these are like little realms of our existence. That's true for a man in his 60s. That's true for a teenage girl going to school, trying to find a realm of friends in which they can relate to a certain set of people who will make them feel a certain way, a sense of identity, a little realm of identity that if, if I was this, People would look at me this way and my life would become this. That would be good. At some point, the devil is going to show up and he's going to talk to you about your kingdoms. And he's going to present to you their glory. Don't be caught off guard by that moment. Because I think sometimes the Christian theology, we've oversimplified some things. and We've acted like... You know, there's nothing good in our lives. Only God, let's be spiritual. Only God is good. Nothing is good. Now, that's not how God designed the universe. Remember, God designed everything, put it in place, and he turned around and said, this is good. This is good. Everything God made was good. And Adam was wired to interact with that goodness. So when the devil shows up and talks to you about the realms and kingdoms that are out there, he will be able to break the brochure out and explain to you why this is good for you. This is really good. And he'll say this about that one and this about that one and this about that one. And then the one thing, the one thing that he's after is worship. He wants to tap into this because this is ultimately... Ultimately, we are created beings that no matter what else we do, let's suppose you're the most talented individual in some category. You're brilliant. You, you run some mega company that, that feeds and does all kinds of things to people. It helps this one. It helps that. It's very moral. It's entrepreneurial. It, it's, it's advancing uh, medical aid all over the world. People's suffering is being eliminated. But your attitude towards God is... I don't need you. You're not important. I acknowledge you exist, but I don't really have the time for you. Would it be accurate to say you're fulfilling the purpose of God as a creature that God has made? Right? Ultimately, it is the way we relate to God that is the most important thing about our existence. God did not create us for some form of life where we live at a distance or we're nominally interested in him. He is to be the big deal of all that we're about. And if you, if you as a creature relate to such a superior, powerful being, the exchange is going to qualify for worship. That's what it's going to be. Because you're going to come in contact with something that you're going to be a little bit afraid to touch because, ooh, man. So there's reverence going to be in an accurate exchange, you're going to be affected by the volume of love and the uniqueness of care and affection that comes from God into your life. You're going to respond to that. That response is going to be worship. 
And if we're not responding in worship, it's because whatever God is, whoever he is, it's not making its way to us. That's the big deal, isn't it? I mean, this whole thing doesn't get fixed that we're talking about worship by just you and I keeping God at a distance. We don't really know him. We're not really affected by him. We're not really around him, but we're listening to some pep talk together about how we need to be more expressive toward God in our, that won't work. The people in the Bible who were reverentially fearful of God, they kind of didn't have to be told that. You know, there wasn't like angels standing on the side when the presence of God shows up and a little sign goes up and says, fall to the ground, please. It's not like a golf course, you know, quiet, please fall. They fell because it was a response to what God really was. Right? So we're not looking to fake something here. This worship thing sits deeply in a connection to God. D.A. Carson goes on and says, if the heart of sinfulness is self-centeredness, well, the heart of biblical religion is God-centeredness. In short, it is worship. In our fallenness, we constrict all there is to our petty horizons. That's an interesting way to describe our lives, petty horizons. I think of all relationships in terms of their impact on me. My daydreams circle around my own life and circumstances. My goals and hopes invariably turn on my place in the universe. Such profound self-centeredness may result in wild cruelty that the world thinks of as social pathology. Or it may result in religious cant. It may issue in war and racism as masses of little people who want to be first exploit and harm others who want the same thing but may lack the means. And it may issue in piety and discipline full of self-satisfaction and fervor. Still, the demon self marches on. The sign that self is broken is true worship. God becomes the center, the focus of delight, the joyful, acknowledged king, the creator, the redeemer. If you watched the news this week, you watched the outflow of human beings whose hearts worship something. Whether that's what happened in, in Memphis with Tyree Nichols, cruel treatment of another human being, or it's what happens in the Ukraine when one group decides. All, all these things are the function of worship. That's what happens in our extended family when there's destruction taking place and we see it in lives. That's what's informed our own sense of harm as we've grown up in this world. Somebody was worshiping. When you and I experienced some of what we have growing up, and if we're humble enough, we'll recognize some of us were worshiping when somebody else around us experienced what we were dishing out. Right? Worship truly is ultimate. I think I wrote in your outline, life is made up of many things, lots of kingdoms, that are ultimately under the control of one thing. John MacArthur wrote a book a number of years ago called Worship the ultimate priority. He says, I have often thought that worship must be one of the most misunderstood doctrines in all of scripture. That is spiritually debilitating because worship is at the center of everything scripture commands of us. In other words, if you are not a true worshiper, everything else in your life will be spiritually out of sync. Conversely, nothing will accelerate your spiritual growth and sanctification more than gaining a right understanding of true worship. When, when that is, which is supposed to be ultimate in our lives, is not the ultimate priority of our lives, the rest of our life is going to be out of sync. Everything, every category in our lives, it's in the wrong place because the ultimate thing is not in the right place. And we tend to think that 
Well, you know, if, if, if I get worship of God out of place, then, you know, let, let me look for these really bad categories. I'm probably going to be a drug addict or um, it's really, really selfish, violence, anger, covetousness, greed, pride. And, and we, we think that's the land where false worship is going to flood into. But when we misplace worship, the good things of our lives are also in the wrong place. Does that make sense? If this is the notch that God has carved out for him and worship to sit and it's the number one spot and we pull it and stick it somewhere else, everything else moves up, doesn't it? Everything moves up. Good things move up. Good things become too important, too needed in our lives, too big a player in our lives. Things like marriage, it's a good thing. God invented it. It's a good thing. Family. It's a good thing. Money. Is money a bad thing in the Bible? Be careful how you answer that. All right? The Bible's not doesn't have a problem with money. It has a problem with the love of money. Talent. You've got unique abilities. They're supposed to be in your life. You have careers. You have things that draw attention to you that you're very good at. When worship in our lives is in the wrong place, all those things get in the wrong place as well. Everything becomes hard to manage, hard to wield, because we, we don't understand why is this so important? Why am I responding to this with so much angst and energy and, and, I, and I'm going after something and I'm hard to deal with? Well, but because that thing should be here and it's way up here because the ultimate thing is at the wrong address right now in your life. John MacArthur goes on and says, the psalmist affirms humanity's ultimate priority with an earnest call to worship our creator. Right, the psalms are filled with this sound. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. That is our supreme duty for time and eternity to honor, adore, right? This is John MacArthur's going to help us with some words. That the worship can be a stagnant word. These words are what worship is. They help inform us. Honor, adore, delight in, glorify, and enjoy God above all his creation as he is worthy to be worshipped. That's what putting God in the ultimate place of worship is about. So let me make two points today as I visit Mount Sinai with you. In the Bible, worship is presented as ultimate and it is presented as exclusive. Right? So ultimate and exclusive. So let's visit real quickly Mount Sinai. Uh, need to visit Mount Sinai. Hebrews chapter 12, verse we keep coming back to. I didn't pull it in today. But Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The setting there is the new Jerusalem, this heavenly dimension. But its starting place is Mount Sinai. Right? So when you and I arrive at Mount Sinai, it is probably the loudest declaration of this thing called worship. In, in almost any place in scripture to help us understand this. We, we visit with the people who have been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. They've been learning from the Egyptians. God has been at a distance for them. And God steps in, breaks that stronghold in Egypt, sets them free, and summons them to himself to meet with him at Mount Sinai. And that's what we have in this setting here. But it's very much about worship. I just want to pick up some of God's language because hey, they don't know what's going on here, right? They've been 430 years in Egypt. They just know Egyptian life and they remember something about God and what he was like, etc. But God shows up and he wants them to do something right now. And here's the words that get used before they get set free. Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. The Lord... The God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now, this is what was announced to Pharaoh, now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, 
that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So that's what Pharaoh gets told on one occasion. And there's more occasions than just this. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, we're still in Egypt. There's still a wrestling match going on with Pharaoh to get the people to be let go. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. All right, same goal. I want you to let them go, and I want them to go into the wilderness. But this time, he's going to use the holding of a feast as what he's after. Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And if you had a New International Version translation, it would say that they may worship me in the wilderness. And then Moses goes on. God reveals something to him in Exodus 4. I didn't put it in your outline, I don't think. Where God says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve or worship God on this mountain. All right, so I'm going to come back to this next week, but I want you to notice something. There's something about you need to not be there anymore and you need to be somewhere else. There's something in here, right? And I want to make this point and I'll come back and clean it up a little bit, maybe next week. Um, I get that there's a tendency among us, and if you're a theological arguer, and I am, that when we talk about worship, there's this over-narrowed discussion of worship as though when we talk about this subject, we're talking about that thing we did for the first 25 minutes that we were here today. Uh, let me clearly say this. We absolutely are talking about that thing we did in the first 25 minutes that we were here. But we're talking about more than that. Because if that's the only place that that exists, uh, there's a lot of problems in our lives. But on the other end, when you swing the pendulum in the other direction and you say things like this, well, all of life is worship. That has some baggage too. Because what you end up with is this idea that, well, everything and everywhere is the same in this whole category of worship. And clearly what you'll see tomorrow, that is not the case. I mean, next week. And you don't see that here. Well, you know, if you want them to, to sacrifice and hold a feast and, and worship... They can do that in Egypt, can't they? Apparently not. And not only that, but they're going to come all the way to this mountain and they're going to do something at this mountain that they're not going to do over there. So apparently where you are sometimes, sometimes matters to God. So make sure you put an asterisk there and don't treat this, oh, well, everything about my life is worship. Okay, that's helpful and not helpful all at the same time. And we'll talk about that next week. But notice the words that are here. He's going to pull them out of Egypt to do three things in this description. To sacrifice, to hold a feast, and to worship or serve. The first thing, and this is almost having to break news to folks. To approach God in the nearness of worship requires a sacrifice to take place. They're going to need to come. I want them to come, but they need to come and they need to sacrifice. Why does anybody need to sacrifice anything because the people being invited to come to this God have offended this God. They are not in right standing with him. Somehow that broken relationship needs to get amended. So we have this idea today that, you know, there's this God out there. He's looking for us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And, and we might think, well, you know, at, you know, at some point when I'm bored and got nothing else to do, I'll give him the time of day. He, you know, he can wait. I got a lot going on. I'm an important person. I'm, you know, I got a lot. And almost as though it's all up to me, you know. If I just, if I just decide to turn to God, it's, it's, all, it's all up to me. Can I just tell you, if you came into the presence of God without sacrificing, it would be your last moment. You'd be done. Because there is this thing called sin. It's traveling in your bloodstream. It's in every thought. It's corrupted everything in this world. It has created a separation between you and your gods where he does not listen to you the way you think he's listening to you. That's a fact. That might be uncomfortable because some of us would like to paint a picture of God that has this human sort of mommy feel to God. Where, well, he's just loving 
and kind. And oh my gosh, is he just loving? Loving off the charts. You've never encountered love like the love of God. You've never encountered a love that can be so deeply affectionate and welcoming and accepting and nurturing and caring like you can in God. But at the very same moment, you can't get near that God. Unless an innocent one sheds their blood on your behalf because we are the guilty ones. So let them go that they may sacrifice to me. Don't ever think that you or I or any one of us could ever approach God without a sacrifice getting us near him. Of course, if you've read your whole Bible, you know those Old Testament sacrifices, they weren't going to permanently do it. They were temporary. Waiting for the ultimate sacrifice when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come and he would sacrifice himself so that we could draw near. And then when we draw near, what are we going to do when we draw near? We're going to hold a feast. And that's an interesting word because, you know, I just described this electrical thing that, you know, if you get near God, you're going to get zapped. And, and now we're going to throw a party. That's exactly what we're going to do. That's what that word means. It's a feast. It's a festival. It's a time of ceremony, celebration, and dancing. That's what that is. So I know sometimes we have turned the God who freaks all of us out into this sense of, oh, somber, seriousness only. God installed these things called festivals in the Old Testament. They were part of worship. There were people, there was music playing. There was a band. They were dancing around. It looked like they, were, they had just won the Super Bowl. There was this expression of delight and affection and celebration. Lighten up a little bit. Sometimes the church is like, oh. Ooh. You know, put on your monk outfits. Let some smoke enter the room. Everybody, don't, do not smile. Get that smile off your face, Cliff. Right now, you're in the presence of God. Uh, there was dancing going on in this. And then there was this word serving that is, is used throughout the Old Testament, both serving and worshiping. They're, they're kind of interchanged. So there is this summons of God here that involves all those things. That's what worship is going to be about. But, but notice something that would be informative to us. The first thing God does is he liberates these people. He goes with his power into Egypt and he liberates them. Now remember this setting and, and what's going on in Egypt. The most powerful kingdom in the world is Egypt and the most feared ruler in all the world is Pharaoh. And without God's intervention, these Israelites are never going anywhere. They are under his thumb under his power, under his tools, his war machine, they're never, ever, ever going to be free of that dominance. And God uses that as an illustration for every one of us. That's what the kingdom of sin under the, the rule of Satan is like for us. We are never, ever, ever going to get free from that. Unless he comes and liberates us. We don't have the power, the intelligence, the angle to work. We don't have it. We're going to stay in our Egyptian enslavement with something else controlling us for the rest of our lives. But God comes and he's the great liberator in scripture. God is the great liberator. We like a liberator story, don't we? Don't you like those movies where, you know, somebody shows up and just trashes the bad guys. I mean, like, you know, these guys are bad guys. I mean, they're horrible. And then the dude shows up that you know. They think they're bad. This dude is bad, man. I mean, he's kind of Jason Bourne on steroids. And he just shows up and just beats everybody to a pulp and embarrasses them publicly. Like, hey, we, we like that. We like the liberation story. But, but notice something. In our world, liberation unto what? When we fight for people to be liberated, freed from something, to what? What do they get freed to? Well, in our world, pay attention, in our world, they get freed to do and be whatever they want to be. That's what freedom is, isn't it? It's you getting to determine who you're going to be and what you're going to do. That's freedom in the world. That's not freedom in the Bible. So when God liberates people... He says something 
kind of strange, actually. Let my people go that they may serve me. They've been serving you, Pharaoh. They've been serving the system of this world. Let them go from serving you that they may serve me. So you understand there there is no ground where you're not serving something besides yourself. There is no existence for humanity where you're not serving something outside of yourself. God's invitation is that we would be his servants instead of serving that. And that's a little problematic for us, right? I wrote in your outline, God's liberation does not make us these completely autonomous, self-determining, self-defining, independent creatures. Today's self-authentic person is defined under the motto of, hey man, you do you. And thus the greatest sin in our world that a man can commit is to interfere with or be intolerant of someone else's self-expression. You want to see people's ears perk up like a dog that just heard a high-pitched whistle? Say something that sounds like you're taking that person's right away from them to do whatever it is that they want. However they self-define, whatever they want to do, whatever they interpret something to be as right or wrong. Hey, man, that's right for you, but it's not exactly for me. There is this code in our world today that hyper self-individualism is the determining factor for how we interpret life. And the worst thing you can do to me is to prohibit me or limit me from my own self-definition and expression. But God doesn't liberate by eliminating man's serving. That's not what he does here. Because he was, man was created to serve. He redirects our serving when he liberates us. He redirects our serving when he liberates us. He says, I I didn't make you to serve that. I didn't design you to be under the enslavement of sin and Satan and to serve sin and to serve Satan. Didn't create you for that. I did create you to serve me. Which, ooh, that can feel kind of weird, isn't it? Is, Is serving kind of like a second best thing to you? Serving. It's not leading. It's not independent. Serving, really? Created to be a servant? All right, who taught me to sound that way? Who taught me to start thinking like serving the living God is a stupid idea? And unfulfilling, by the way, as well. And I would be better off if I could just chart my own course, do it my own way. I would be more fulfilled, more happy. My life would be better if I was in charge. Who taught me that idea? My ancestors. Who taught them? That snake in the garden. God designed us to serve and worship him. You and I are our healthiest and most thriving when we are worshiping and serving the living God. We will never be more alive than in that moment. We will never be more fulfilled. There will never be more joy in our lives than in that moment. And to abandon that as our ultimate call is to wrestle for the rest of our lives with other things that will not fulfill us, will not bring joy and completeness and satisfaction into our lives. Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. That's what God has for us. So the purpose of our liberty is not unto ourself, it's unto God. God liberates us so that we may worship him. And, and this worship is a priority, right? God is summoning this people 430 years in prison all these years. And he's going to have a meeting with them in Exodus chapter 20. And this is, this is God's first words to the gathering of people. Hey, nice to meet you. It's been a long time. How's your mama now? No, that's not what he says. Acts 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh. That's what that, the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm the personal God who has made covenant with your ancestors. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Does God waste time with any other discussion, any other small talk? What's the first thing God wants to talk about with these people that he just rescued out of enslavement to sin? What's the first thing? Exclusivity, no other gods before me, and priorities. Here's the priorities of your existence. Me in a unique place with nothing else. That's your life in relating to me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Those two words are related. That term worship, it's interesting. If you look up the term worship, uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, you're going to find many times it's translated bow. And sometimes it's translated. So there is, I'm going to pick this up again. There is a physical dimension to our worship. Right? There was an expressiveness to worship. People bowed down. They would bow to someone in superior rank. It was, a, it was an activity that gave an expression to that which was in their heart. They recognized you are greater than me. And they would bow down. And God uses those words. You shall not bow down to them or serve, and he says, worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's why you don't do it. Okay, this is the difference between being God-centered and man-centered. Man-centered has, has some truth in it. And I, I've already said some stuff. Right? Hey, listen, don't be bowing down to anything else. Because listen, if you bow down to something, it's going to wreck your life. It's going to wreck your life, okay? Your life's going to be full of pain, full of regret, full of broken things in your life. All right, who am I concerned with right now? You. Is it wrong for me to concern, be concerned? No. The Bible's very concerned with us. Is that the reason why you don't bow down to other things in this passage? No. The reason we don't bow down to other things in this passage is because God is a jealous God. So this is where, if I can just accept that, God is a certain way, and therefore I just need to respect and honor that and not come up with, well, if I do this, yeah, I went to a message one time and Keith said something extreme and he made it sound like if I did this, you know, my whole life was going to fall apart. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be that bad. Yeah, so what's motivating you? You know, just me making decisions about me just for me and what advantage do I have? And is this going to hurt me really or not? I don't think it's going to hurt anybody. I'm not hurting anybody else. Anybody ever hear somebody say that as a justification for, Hey, it's, that's my own business. Uh, that's not the reason in this passage, you shall not bow down and worship anything else because the Lord, your God is a jealous God. The reason we do or don't do things is because of who God is. It's not how our world thinks. And this can sound like, Keith, what on earth? This is like nuts. Uh, this is the first few minutes of talking to God. If I were to say, hey, guys, in a few minutes, God's going to be here. Okay, can you really just sit up straight, be on your best behavior? And he comes in, and the first thing out of his mouth, is, you know, it's not small talk. He doesn't tell a couple of jokes. You know, he doesn't tell you about where he's been. He just comes right out and says, okay, let me just get, make sure you get this right. There's... there's there's something ultimate about me in your life, and there's something exclusive about me in your life. I want to make sure you get that right first. That's where he starts. The word there, gane, for jealous, it means an adjective meaning jealous. In every instance of this word, it is used to describe the character of the Lord. He is a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of other gods. So closely is this characteristic associated with God that his name is jealous. When you read Exodus chapter 34, God says, my name is jealous. How come nobody ever quotes that one? I don't know if Oprah knows that one. You know, God is love. Okay, he is. Can I add another word for you to ponder how these two words get along? God is jealous. In other words, he's not okay with just about anything because he's love, right? 
The same God who is love is also jealous. And so I've got to let God be God. Remember that verse we'll come back to? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Why is this whole worship thing the way it is? Because God is something. He is a certain way. So here we have God is a jealous God. There is an exclusivity. There is a place in our lives that God refuses to share with anything else in this world. Anything else in our lives. It's exclusive. It belongs uniquely to God. Every one of our hearts needs some holy ground that is not like common terrain in other places of our lives. Remember John MacArthur says, if you are not a true worshiper, everything else in your life will be spiritually out of sync. And then he uses those, those words to describe worship. Remember, I, I borrowed some worship, uh, worship words from John Piper as well. Right? Before I get to those words, I wrote in your outline, please carefully listen. Remember, true worship needs accurate vocabulary words. It needs the kind of words the Bible uses to describe our exchange with God, not the ones we might come up with. We're not worshipers just because we attend church or have religious routines or live moral lives that reference the Bible. That doesn't qualify to be called worship. I went to church. I went to the worship service today. Um, Okay. Using a word lightly there. But it doesn't become worship until it engages our affections. Words like honor and adore and delight and glorify. Piper's words like savoring. Being satisfied with all God is for us in Jesus. Satisfied. That's a big word, isn't it? To be able to stand and say, oh, in my, I'm satisfied. That's an expression of worship. This is what worship smells like. How do you know if you're worshiping? You smell like this. Express great and glorious things to God. You treasure and show. You admire and adore. You delight in and have thankfulness. You are affectional. You express something to God. How do you know if you're worshiping? You smell like worship. You smell like these words. And if you don't smell like these words, be careful that you don't slap the worship label on what you're doing. You're wasting that word. It's a precious, powerful word. So let me install today. Can I install a baseline for worship? Right, you know what a baseline is? It's like this is just, here's the bottom. Everything else goes above this. Baseline for worship. By exploring, what kind of capacity do we have for these words? Delighting, cherishing, adoring, admiring, enjoying, satisfying. What kind of capacity do you have as an individual for those words? Because these are the expressions of worship. And so to get at that, I need to introduce some familiar categories to us. Like football and food and politics. And PlayStation, I was going to say for all you kids, but PlayStation hangs around. Some of you young men in here still have a lot of PlayStation involvement in life. Stock market and sex. What kind of capacity do you have for delight and affection, eagerness and interest, pursuit, enduring captivating connections. Right, so let me just be careful about most of the things that I just listed there. Because this is what we've done. Here's a giant mistake in this worship category. We've, we've, we've made most of those taboo. As, oh, as though God is saying, hey, have nothing to do with any of that. You just worship me. Right, that's not what God said. If God wanted to stick us in a box with nothing to look at, nothing to taste, nothing to enjoy, nothing called sex, nothing, nothing that captures us, lights us up, and affects us, he could have done exactly that. Everybody could have been an individual in a stainless steel box with nothing to look at but God. That's not what he created. 
He created a world full of pleasures, full of things to experience and to enjoy. What are those things supposed to be? Well, they're kind of like elementary school. Go to elementary school because at some point you're going to want to get your PhD in God. But you might need to start in elementary school. So let's start in the elementary school of football. How many football fans here today? What's involved in engaging football? There's, there's following. There's observing. Everybody here, you know, you forgot that some, at some point you had to learn the rules. You know, you didn't know the rules. You had to learn them. Now you know. Now you can see a penalty that should have been called that didn't get called. I mean, you're good. I mean, you, you got this thing. You see that? I had to throw a flag. What is wrong with you? Uh, and you're expressive, right? There's emotion here. There, there is timeliness. There's season tickets being bought. You know, season tickets probably cost more than tithing does. Um, I mean, there's, there's engagement. You know, we, we don't show up late for a big game. Uh, and listen, and, and I'm not finding fault with any of this. Please don't go in the wrong direction with this. I mean, we had, when the Saints went to the Super Bowl, we had a giant Super Bowl party here at the church. I didn't come. Because I didn't want to be interrupted by another human being. I stayed at home with a small group of people so that I could watch the game without having to interact with another person and I could be involved in every play. Now, I'll tell you the difference between church and here. You know, we, we do, you know, we have live stream stuff available so you can watch the replay of this. Um, and, you know, I, I don't miss church so I can watch a live football game. Right, it's kind of easy for me to say that, right? Because I have to stand here every week. <laughs> but I do watch the replay. I tape the Saints games every Sunday. Right? But it's just a matter of how do you, how do you treat these things? Right? There's, there's certain zeal in these categories, and they're, and they're not wrong. How about politics? You know, get around some people who, man, they light up when we start talking politics. You thought that person was quiet, didn't you? You thought they were kind of self-restrained and polite? Uh, no. You press the politics button and oh my, oh my. And have you ever noticed this? Uh, political views are kind of like systematic theology, right? You know that if somebody says this about that issue, well, you know, they also believe this about that one and this about that one and this about that one. So if you're like a big government person, you're cool with these taxes and you probably don't mind that there's all kinds of immorality in the laws and you're probably for abortion. It's like, it's like systematic theology. And then there's another set of theology over here, right? And they're all conservative this and we don't believe that. It, it's, and, and we know this stuff. But, but here, here's what's troubling as a pastor. I've watched people live their lives and, and never switch camps, Right? They never go from, I was stinking conservative out the wazoo, and now I'm as liberal as I can get. I, I don't know anybody who's done that in either direction. I do, however, know people who have sat in churches that are reformed in their theology, God-centered in what they preach, and they leave that church and go to an Arminianist, man-centered church. Or those who have been in churches for years that are continuationist in their theology, that we believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, leave that church and go to another church who doesn't believe that at all. Kind of like, yeah, but you're still conservative, right? How is it that political convictions can run deeper in us than theological ones? PlayStation. You want to see how long you can endure something? What, what are you capable of, of sitting in one space for how long? <laughs> it's like sometimes you wonder if you're going to walk in your kid's room and it's like they've grown a beard and it's like they're overweight. It's like I've been here for months. Uh, what does that teach you, though, about yourself? That you have some human capacity to be tenacious about something, to stare at something, to get good at it to develop skills and abilities. You do have it. The stock market. Right? There are some who, you know, you're invested in the stock market. When you look at the stock market, as a matter of fact, you look at it every day, right? You know whether the market's up or whether it's down. And, and you transfer something to the market, a sense of future hope and security. 
the market's up. I'm feeling good. Look at that. It's, it's trending up and I'm invested in the right things right now. And my future is good. All right. Can I just pick that whole thought up and transfer it to God? That just taught you, I have the capacity to worship God uniquely. I could take my hope for the future and the goodness and the provision and the protection that's going to come from somewhere in my life, and I could pick it up from the stock market, and I could hand it to God. And I could look to him and see if he's up today. You up today, God? How's heaven? Running things all right? You you about to file bankruptcy? What's up? What's my future going to be like? I could transfer all that to God. This is not an anti-stock market thing. I think you shouldn't wisely invest in your future. Let me pick on the most obvious one. Sex. You know, the Bible says stuff like this. I I, I had to just put this in here because maybe we think of sex corrupted by the world. Proverbs chapter 5. This is the Bible. Verse 18. Hey, gentlemen, let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So not this PG setting, but this is God's word. So... Do you think God intended for you to experience affections and expressions, words like rejoice and delight and be intoxicated? What is this exchange supposed to be like? Well, delightful and rejoicing. You ought to be thinking about it. It ought to be on your mind. This is something you receive something from because God designed it that way. do Do you think... Worshiping God and our affection for God was supposed to be less than that? Does anybody read their Bible and go, oh, well, well, God put sex at like this level. And he put him right down here. Does anybody believe that? Does anybody think that God is saying you need to stop doing this sex thing so you'll worship me? Does anybody believe that? Somehow, all these things provide for us a baseline of what I'm capable of. They introduce me to my ability to worship, to delight, to be obsessed, to pay attention to, to have affections for. That's why I think when we come in here and we have, we have a unique setting, right? I, I do believe all of life is worship and there are unique settings where God gives us expressions for that worship that are unique. Um, When we come in here, we know what we're capable of because we've been to a Saints game. We've been to a Pelicans game. We know what it's like to see something that we quickly interpret and be affected by it. We know what that's like. We know what that call at that moment in the game took away any chance of us making a comeback. And what rose up in me? Anger, indignation, hopelessness, our lives are over. I mean, all that just came up in that moment. When I stared this morning at that phrase, is anyone going to open these scrolls? Anybody. For all eternity, there's a God who has written the future full of his grace, abounding in his loving kindness, eradicating sin and its destruction in this world. And it's all bound up in that document right there. Can anybody open that? Anybody? Can anybody open that? And the Son of God stands up and he says, I can open it. I will open those scrolls for you. That affects me a little bit more deeply than who scored that touchdown. But I'm going to be affected by the touchdown too. They're baselines. They're just teaching us what we're capable of. So how many of you can recognize seeing worship from this angle? How many of you can recognize we are capable of a lot more worship than we have been experiencing? Can you see that? Can can you venture into a little bit of discomfort in this category? Can you not do what Aaron said? Can you not just keep doing the same old thing? 
Let me just keep doing the same old thing. Could could we start today afresh and say, God, whatever worship is going to look like at Lakeview Christian Center and in my life, it needs a new baseline. It doesn't need to be the patterns that I've just learned and installed by watching the person next to me, by living my own life with my own personality. Listen, there are lots of things, lots of things that I do in my life that I never would have done in and of me. I would never stand in front of a group of people like this. Never. No thank you. But there's expressions that God wants to awaken in us when he sits in this ultimate exclusive place, holy ground in our hearts toward him. That's like nothing else. Let's stand up together. I should have asked you to come up earlier. I'm sorry. Maybe Seth, if you would just come up and help me. We're going to put some wheels on some of this in the next couple of weeks. I don't want this just to sound just to sound like so. So Keith, what, what do you have? You want to, you want us to sing louder on Sunday? Clap? What, is that what you're after? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I'm after making us aware that that worship is like breathing. We, we breathe something in that needs to get expressed out. And next week you're going to see this and I, ho- and I hope it'll be conclusive and I'll, I'll try not to bury us in this, but God doesn't welcome your own ideas in worshiping him. That's what the golden calf was, by the way. God's not up for you to say, well, you know, I've never, my family always... Yeah, the people who came out of Egypt, their family never, and they always had golden calves. God didn't turn around and say, well, this is the golden calf section. So if you guys want to worship me with golden calves, hey, that's cool. Because they were trying to worship God, by the way. God's not okay with you and I inventing our own ways of affectionately relating to him. So what I want us to do this morning is just, can we just present our, our hearts and our lives to God? We just got introduced to ourselves. The football and food and politics and all those categories just awakened us an awareness of what am I capable of? What could affectionate worship look like for me? Let's pray together. Lord, if we were meeting you for the very first time, there would be holy ground that you would introduce us to, a place where you dwell like nothing else dwells in our lives. It would be an awesome location. We would be invited to take our shoes off and treat this piece of ground differently than other pieces of ground. You would meet with us and you would perhaps talk to us about that which is ultimate and that which is exclusively yours. Lord, and you would not be doing that because you're some kind of killjoy. You would simply be restoring the settings of our life. You would simply be taking us back to the place for which we were always designed and created to enjoy all of your creation, but to enjoy you uniquely. To delight in many, many things that came from you. From food to games, to intimacy with our wives and husbands. All these things fully enjoyed because they're from you. But something of holy ground still existing where you are the ultimate that we worship. You are on unique holy ground. There is nothing else in our lives like you. So God, I pray in an age in which we live that makes everything common, you would introduce us to holy ground. 
exchanges and locations and affections that uniquely belong to you, Lord. And no other person, not our families, not our children, not our jobs, not our talents, not our goals in life, not our money, not anything else, as much as you bless us with all those things. God, you are a jealous God. You sit alone in our hearts in a certain way. God, help us, help us to discover that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. Have a great week. You guys watching, we love you and miss you. Hey guys, if you're needing prayer today, please remember our prayer team is available to just connect with you for a few minutes and pray for you. So please don't leave if you felt like somebody needed to pray for you for something.